I'm David Torsivia. I'm Daniel Forkner. And this is Ashes, Ashes, a show about systemic issues, cracks in civilization, collapse of the environment, and if we're unlucky, the end of the world. But if we learn from all this, maybe we can stop that. The world might be broken, but it doesn't have to be. Yeah, may I hear you? Hi, um, I'd like to reserve a table for Wednesday the 7th. For seven people? Um, it's for four people. Four people? When? Um, next Wednesday at 6 p.m. Oh, actually we leave here for like, after like five people. Four four people, you can come. How long is the wait usually to uh, be seated? For when tomorrow or weekday or? For next Wednesday, uh, the 7th. Oh, no, it's not too busy. You, you, you can come for four people, okay? Oh, I gotcha. Thanks. Bye-bye. That was the sound of millions and millions of call center employees around the world becoming obsolete. Yes, Daniel, that's right. This was actually not a human calling this restaurant, but a demo of the latest technology Google just presented at their AI conference of a robot who makes a call understands what somebody says, replies back to them in ways that make sense, and then takes actions based on that information it receives. There's no human element here except the person they're calling, and conceivably one day it'll be just a bot calling another bot. And this is here now. This technology is already being deployed by Google. They're pushing it out for different products right now, but it will very soon hit the commercial market and find itself to all of our phones and devices within just a matter of years. When you said that one day we'll have bots calling bots, it made me think, how do we even know that the restaurant owner was a human? And are we looking at a world one day, David, where millions and millions of phone hours will be spent every day by robots just calling each other, thinking they're humans, but really they're not? These are interesting questions. And would this make for great uh, entertainment? I don't know, but it is going to make for a great episode because this week we are discussing automation, robots, and the end of work as we know it. Well, I know we cover some dark topics on the show, but that sounds like a good thing, David. It does at first glance, but the fact of the matter is, is we have a system that's broken, an economic, a cultural, political system that enables something that should be as great as automation of a world where we don't need to work, or at least work much less, and turns it into what may be one of the most apocalyptic topics that we've ever discussed on this show. And something, honestly, that the world is not prepared for and is coming much sooner than anyone realizes. By 2030, 73 million jobs could be automated in the United States alone. That's 50% of jobs here in the U.S. Let's just get that out of the way. And if that doesn't drive that number in enough, it's more than double the unemployment rate at the very peak of the Great Depression. And by 2030, globally, 800 million jobs could be lost to automation. There's going to be a lot of numbers and statistics in this show, but those are the two figures that we're going to really come back to and that that you just need to remember. So depending on the nation, 30 to 50% of all jobs will be gone within 15 years. David, when we were preparing for this show, at first, I thought that it might be A little strange to follow up farmland access with a show about robots and machines. I mean, it seems like a very uh, big gap between topics, right? But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that this is actually the perfect sequence. This is the perfect show to follow farmland access. Okay, Daniel, I'll buy it. Why is that the case? 
Well, David, you just said we have a broken system, right? And I think it's very simple. It comes down to this. First, take away all the land, okay? That's the farmland access show. Next, charge people just to exist. Done and done. Right. And the final step is automate away every person's jobs, but continue to charge them to exist because you still own all the land. Well, that sounds like the uh, perfect recipe for disaster, uh, apocalypse, or if you're the more optimistic type, maybe revolution. And that is the situation we are now on the tipping point of today. So you want to jump in, David? Yeah, let's get started. So machines and robots have been around for a long time now, but the ability to replace human labor has faced extraordinary challenges, even for or maybe especially for some of the tasks we would consider to be the most menial, basic, and low-skill tasks you can think of. And I remember watching videos when I was a kid of factories and the way assembly lines and machines worked to produce anything from a toothbrush to a car. And it fascinated me to see how these products were put together with the help of huge industrial machines. But as complex as those machines were, they still relied on very predictable inputs along predetermined paths. And humans had to stay close to monitor for errors, conduct maintenance, shift and sort parts by hand, or any number of complementary tasks. And a few years ago, I was actually in Berlin, and I did a factory tour of BMW's motorcycle production assembly line there. And David, it absolutely blew my mind. The level of automation, precision, and speed with which the assembly line functioned was incredible. And the crazy part about it is this factory is BMW's only motorcycle factory in the entire world. Every single bike is custom and made to order. They don't produce a single standard motorcycle. Instead, a dealer calls them up, says, hey, I need 24 motorcycles. I want this color scheme and these specs. And it's only then that the factory starts making them. And two to six weeks later, those motorcycles are delivered anywhere in the world. And that's made possible by automation. That's true, Daniel. But at the end of the day, it's still an assembly line. And humans are there at multiple stations along the way, putting all these parts together. They're doing engine work. They're doing the fine-tuned customization. And every single process requires a minimum of two people for inspection and quality control. In other words, the humans are there to fill in the gaps. There are tasks that come naturally to humans that, right now at least, seem impossible for machines. We look at a table with a bunch of clutter on it, and it's very easy for us to recognize a pen or a pencil. It's just automatic, instant. Or maybe a coffee cup or a flower vase. And then physically pick these objects up, rearrange them however we want, pick them up as high, put them down as hard. We are very good at this. It's easy. But at least three obstacles have prevented robots from doing the same. One, the physical dexterity required for manipulating objects of different sizes, shapes, and sensitivity. Two, the visual perception, that's actually just even having any sort of vision. And then, of course, three, the computation powers and software to recognize what it's actually seeing. Map these 3D spaces, and then ultimately make decisions of what to do. Which is why it's been easy for machines to send a 500-pound motorcycle down a line after drilling holes in the same place as every other motorcycle. But unloading a truck full of random boxes and then stacking them up against the wall, well, it's been out of reach for the most part. But that's all changing. 
Technology has advanced to the point where robots and machines are now poised to invade the final frontier of manual labor. And it's because of advances that simultaneously address those three obstacles. Huge leaps and bounds were made in visual perception that was largely driven by the gaming industry, actually. You remember Xbox Connect. Now the company that makes that has taken that technology, sold it to Apple, and then that's what you find in your latest iPhone that scans your face. This uses infrared lighting, it maps 3D spaces, and for years, hobbyists have reverse-engineered this device and found innovative ways to apply them to robots to 3D scanning. And while in the past it would have been very expensive to program a single robot for complex function, this barrier has been all but surmounted through innovative programming, open-source libraries, and machine learning. Individual robots in a factory setting no longer need expensive processing power inside their chassis, but can instead be run by central hubs that do all the computing in these warehouse-sized server rooms and connect to the robots wirelessly, something that, as we'll discuss, has particularly large implications for the service sector. But in terms of manufacturing, these factors combine with very precise robots. So there's a company called Rethink Robotics, and they have a robot which they call Baxter. It has two precision arms that any worker can program by physically moving in the pattern needed. That is, it learns. Once a single Baxter is trained, its behavior can be transferred to any number of other Baxters. And these advances are being sped up even more with developments in machine learning, in object recognition and computer vision, and many other technologies which are finally beginning to reach maturity and spread out and to become developed and ubiquitous. Of course, it's not all roses yet, as we've seen with Elon Musk's trouble at his factories trying to fully automate the Tesla production, which he even has come out as admitting that he overestimated the effectiveness of automation right now and in fact is bringing in a lot more human workers to complement the robots that they brought in. But factory conditions, production lines, these are very predictable, simple ways to apply automation to. And it's a small sector of the economy as a whole. If you go back to the beginning of this episode, we were talking about 70 million jobs in the U.S. gone in a little over a decade. There's not that much factory production in the U.S., so what are all these jobs being replaced? Well, David, before we talk about the specific jobs at risk here, I think we have to go over kind of broadly some of the economic forces that are at play here that really threaten the labor force's ability to adapt to this changing environment of technology and automation. And as you mentioned, there's still a lot of factory work that requires human labor because we're not there yet, but we're on the cusp of something coming very soon. The consulting company McKinsey found that if you wanted to fully automate jobs around the world today with current and proven technology, you could replace just 5% of jobs. But you don't need full automation for labor to be impacted. Today, for most jobs, about 60% of them, at least 30% of the activities within the occupation could be automated. And that means that if current technology were deployed on a large scale, In every sector that it could, up to 1.2 billion employees around the world would be affected. What does that mean practically? It doesn't mean that we're going to be doing less work individually, but that instead one person is going to be doing the jobs of several people. And this is where we're going to see automation playing out in the first place. One person replacing several workers, but still a person there doing that work, just more efficiently for whatever business owner is in charge. And all this is going to put pressure on wages. This is something we've seen. It's something that a lot of people are already aware of, which is wages have not kept pace with the rise in productivity over the past couple decades. In fact, the average American worker who is in a production or a non-supervisor role 
and that makes up more than half of all employees in America. Well, they experienced declining real wages of about 13% for 40 years between 1973 and 2013. All while being more and more productive for those people paying the wages. And similarly, that consulting company McKinsey found that in, quote, advanced economies, unquote, around the world, 66% of household wages stayed flat or fell from 2005 to 2014. Incomes for workers have fallen as the share of national income around the world has shifted away from labor and towards owners of capital. And like you said, David, this is relevant to the cusp of our current situation because these falling wages have occurred during a time of soaring productivity. And between 1948 and 2011, productivity increased by over 250% in the U.S. alone, while wages peaked in the early 70s. In the past, wages increased alongside productivity as tools and technology were introduced that could increase the output of an individual's labor. The value of that individual's work rose. An assembly line, after all, might make workers more efficient, raising productivity, but you can't have a functioning assembly line without those workers. But as technology has gotten better at not just leveraging worker skills, but replacing the work that people do, We've seen workers get less and less of the share of national income, and instead, it's going to businesses and owners of capital. Since the 70s, the share of national income going to labor has fallen by 7%. But that drop in income that is going to employees and workers, well, it includes the salaries and bonuses that have been rising tremendously for our CEOs and other high-paid professionals like bankers which means that the decline in wages felt by the majority of workers is much more pronounced. But this isn't limited to the United States. China, Germany, Japan, Italy, France, and Canada have all had greater losses than the United States in terms of this retreat of national income that's going to labor. To put it simply, we work more than ever. We make those that we work for more money than ever. And we're paid less than at any time in the past few decades. But maybe we're getting distracted for a bit talking about this. I mean, the topic of this show is automation, right? And if you ask any economist, they're going to tell you, well, automation, well, it creates jobs. That's the standard argument, David, when it comes to new technology. And in fact, they are so convinced about this, they they have their own little thing, the Luddite fallacy, our friends the Luddites, which we've discussed in the past. And they say that anybody who thinks that automation is going to hurt jobs, is going to generally lower employment, cause mass unemployment, well, it's just because they don't understand economics. They don't understand supply and demand, the fact that as we create more automation, well, that frees up people, they can go follow through with whatever other jobs, it creates jobs. Well, David, not just that it frees them up, but like you said, it creates new jobs. And it's actually a pretty compelling illustration. So let me give you an example. Let's say that technology introduces something new. Like in agriculture, we invent a big machine like a tractor that one person can drive, but oh no, it replaces the work of 10 laborers. Well, as the illustration goes, those 10 jobs that are lost are made up by the fact that the factory that produces that tractor, well, it needs workers. 
And now new businesses need to be created to supply workers for repairing and servicing tractors. And now we need salespeople to sell the tractors and accountants and lawyers to help manage the industry of tractor making and selling. Oh, and we probably export some of those tractors to other countries. And all this creates demand for more skilled workers who can transition from shoveling dirt to sitting in front of computers or calling people on the phone or something similar. At least that's the argument. And you know what? Maybe there was a lot of truth to that in the past. And as much as economists like to cling to this argument, I think they're missing something. And that's the fact that this time, well, it's different. Daniel, in your example here with this tractor, it's replacing the laborers, but we have people selling it. We have people who need to service it, whatever. Well, let's look at this from an advanced automation perspective. That factory, that assembly line, well, it's mostly robots with maybe one or two people staffing what will be hundreds of tractors replacing hundreds of field laborer jobs. The people who are selling these tractors, well, as we just learned in the beginning of this episode, those salespeople might themselves be bots talking to other bots, organizing shipments that are brought together by bots for bots, delivered by autonomous driving vehicles. And ultimately, and this exists now, these tractors, once they get there, there's not anybody driving it. It's navigated entirely autonomously. And this whole chain, the supply chain that used to create many jobs, well, all those jobs are now replaced by robots, by programs, and the number of jobs lost greatly surpasses those that created by the new industries. But once again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Well, David, you're also talking about tractors, which maybe not everyone can relate to. So here's a more relatable example. Blockbuster. This company used to provide brick-and-mortar stores for people to rent movies. In Chicago, Blockbuster used to have dozens of locations, each with around seven employees. And Blockbuster had 60,000 employees nationally. Well, as everyone knows, Blockbuster was crushed by new services like Netflix and Redbox, which I'm not complaining about. But now if we look at Chicago, there are a little under 200 Redbox locations in the area. And how many people do you think it takes to manage all of these, David? 200 red boxes that people come, they have to keep them restocked. People are renting movies left and right every day. Oh, you know, a movie just came out. We got to restock it. How many people do you think it takes? Does anybody even use Redbox anymore? That's the problem with technology these days, <laughs> David. It changes so fast. I don't, I don't know, Daniel. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out like a ridiculously low number anyway. Okay. 12 people, a dozen people for all of Chicago. Take that number, David, and subtract four. Um, let me get my calculator out. The answer is eight. It's eight. Eight people manage all of the red boxes for the Chicago area. And like this tractor example that we were using, we should expect peripheral jobs to open up. Someone has to maintain these machines, right? And repair them when they break. Well, all that's taken care of the same eight people. They do everything. They pick up movies from the warehouse. They restock the boxes. And when they malfunction, they can repair it from the comfort of their homes using internal motors and arms within the Redbox machine that can be controlled over the internet. I'm going to go around unplugging red boxes from the internet. I'm a job creator. Sorry. And so why is this time different, David? A lot of it has to do with this information technology that makes it possible to repair a machine over the internet that has now become so integrated in every business. But I think someone could still make the argument that somewhere in the economy, there are new jobs as a result of this change. And we just aren't seeing the connection. I mean, a great example that people use is the invention of the ATM machine. 
No. A lot of people... Is, it's ATM. That's what I said. Oh, ATM machine. <laughs> I said ATM machine machine. Yeah. No, you said you just said ATM machine machine, which is automated teller machine machine machine. <laughs> well, the point is, when this technology was invented, people figured it would be the end of the bank teller. But actually, it created more jobs because it allowed banks to open new branches. And these bank tellers could now focus on other things like customer service. That's right, Daniel. Once again, we like to look at the big picture, but maybe we're missing it this time. So instead, we could look at the actual numbers. So forget trying to make connections between one job lost and another created. Let's just look instead at the total job creation for the country as a whole. Now, when looking at job creation by decade, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics shows that the United States has been adding less and less jobs every 10 years. We increased the number of new jobs by over 30% in the 1960s, and that figure fell down to just 20% during the 1990s. Obviously, job creation was horrible in the late 2000s because of the financial crisis, but right before the crisis occurred in 2007, when the economy was booming, one of the biggest bull runs the market has ever seen, well, new job creation had increased by only 5.8%. If the crisis had never happened, we would have still experienced a dismal 8% increase in new jobs. As it turns out, when we look at the numbers now, we created zero. And because we need to add up to 150,000 jobs each month just to keep up with population growth, the first decade of the 21st century resulted in a deficit of over 9 million jobs. So productivity has gone through the roof, but wages have fallen and no jobs have been created. So why is this happening in a time of rapid technological innovation and automation that should be creating new jobs, as the argument goes? Well, a lot of it has to do with information technology, which is now embedded into the very infrastructure that every business now taps into and relies on, which means that new innovations that take place in very labor-intensive industries are aimed at leveraging information technology to reduce reliance on human labor, while at the same time, any new business that is created starts from a baseline that's tapped into this information technology in a way that minimizes the need for labor. And here's another illustration. We can examine the per-employee valuation of some of the largest tech acquisitions in recent history to get a sense of what's going on. Google acquired YouTube in 2006 for $1.7 billion. And at the time, YouTube had just 65 employees. Adjusting for inflation to 2018 values, that's a valuation of $31 million per worker. And Facebook bought Instagram six years later for $84 million per worker. And it acquired WhatsApp two years after that for a record $365 million per worker. I wonder how much of that the workers got. That's a good question, David. Probably not much. And we see these high valuations in technology and energy companies because the role information technology plays, allowing services and products to be scaled exponentially without an accompanying rise in labor. But because information technology is being infused with almost every business, this will mean revenue and profits will continue to soar across the board without requiring additional labor. These are unicorn examples, Daniel. Giant companies acquired for even bigger amounts of money. And it paints a very small picture of the economy as a whole, of what most businesses are actually doing. But something that is a very good indicator of the economy as a whole, of, of employment, is, well, unemployment. In the US and Europe, right now, 
there are more than 285 million people who want to work but aren't. Up to 45% of the population worldwide is either underemployed or completely unemployed. So already, we're at nearly half the global population that's out of work. And to go back to some of those figures that we discussed earlier, if automation was deployed today, just the current levels of automation where we take away just a little bit of some of the work, 1.2 billion people employed around the world will be affected. And what does it mean, David, to be affected by automation? What's interesting is that 1.2 billion figure. That's a large number of people that are going to be affected by this change. And when we think of machines and robots replacing jobs, I think it's easy to imagine total replacement, a robot instead of a human. And it's not so easy to see the tangential effects that encroaching automation has on those that already have jobs. But the reality is that this automation that's encroaching is taking away the value of skill. It is de-skilling workers that have jobs right now. Let's talk about this. What is de-skilling, Daniel? That's a, that's a word I've never heard before. I don't even know if it's an actual word, to be honest. But, but what is this concept? Let me give you an example, David. The fast food industry has had access to technology for a while now that can completely automate the process of creating hamburgers, among other things. A marvel of modern science. That's right, David. The company Momentum Machines debuted a machine in 2012 that could produce 400 hamburgers per hour. Now that's a lot of hamburgers. And this includes the grilling of the patty, slicing of the vegetables, assembling it all under a pair of buns, and even wrapping it to go. But we still don't see anything like this in fast food chains around the world. And a big reason for that is that other forms of automation have already eroded the need for skilled workers across the fast food industry, which has enabled companies to reduce humans themselves to what amounts to interchangeable parts of a great machine. So this unemployment, this de-skilling of the workforce, lowering of the minimum wage, and automation in general, it's also driving deep inequality or labor polarization. In the same way that wealth accumulation has been carving out the middle class in the U.S. and around the world, pushing people down the socioeconomic ladder and creating massive income disparities between the rich and the poor, well, we see the same phenomenon occurring in jobs. The de-skilling of the majority labor force is pushing workers down the skill ladder and locking them in place there. There are no opportunities to learn skills on the job that translate to better opportunities when you function as an interchangeable part, stripped of all autonomy. So ironically, we are making machines more human-like in order to make humans more machine-like. I want to interrupt you just for one second here, Daniel, because I think this is a really good concept that we don't uh, consciously think about these days because a fast food restaurant is at this point just something we take for granted. What is that meme always about? Like, you never graduated high school, you're just going to go flip burgers or something, and as disrespectful as that is. The idea is that going and working at one of these fast food restaurants is a low skill and what some people believe should be low pay because of that job. But honestly, why is that the case? Food production is hard. Cooking is difficult, at least if you want the food to be good. Chef positions are highly sought after. It's, it's tough work. Even something as simple as being a line cook, it, well, it takes a lot of thinking and knowledge and expertise. But automation, and this is something that we don't normally think of as automation, but automation in these fast food restaurants, things that standardize the production of these burgers, and automation isn't necessarily always just machines, but also ways of thinking and doing things, assembly line productions carried over to this food production industry has de-skilled 
this concept that Daniel's discussing. What used to be, and for many restaurants, what still is a high skill position requiring lots of expertise and knowledge in order to produce good tasting food. I think that's a great way to look at it, David. You're absolutely right. And that's what de-skilling is. Taking work that otherwise requires a lot of skill, automating the parts away that you can, and reducing the human to a very simple, interchangeable part. And because humans are now more interchangeable in this industry, the value of their labor has plummeted. Minimum wages have fallen, and the cost-benefit threshold of a fully autonomous machine versus low-paid and low-maintenance humans just hasn't incentivized companies to go all the way and pay for these 400 hamburgers an hour fully autonomous robots. Ultimately, because they're already paying humans so little that they just don't even have to implement the full machine. But these workers, they've already suffered as a result of encroaching automation. This is one of the concepts that's important to grasp in this show, that automation doesn't need to completely eliminate or replace a job for it to impact the workers negatively. Because fast food labor is seen as low skill, as expendable, as not necessary to a complex or or skill-based economy, well, workers are paid correspondingly something extremely low. And as automation becomes more complex, binds itself into more advanced software that starts to replace white-collar jobs, you're going to see what was traditionally seen as very safe, high-skill work turn into the same sort of low-pay, low-skilled employment that caused fast food work to be such low-pay and, honestly, contemptible, unfortunate as that is. And we're not the only ones that have started to notice this. A working paper from the National Bureau of Economic Research, which is a nonprofit organization, it's not a governmental department. Fancy title. Yeah, fancy title. Well, nonetheless, they argue that at the turn of the century, uh, that's 2000, the demand for skilled labor and cognitive tasks associated with higher education, well, it started reversing. Because of retreating demand for high-skilled labor, highly educated and skilled workers have been moved to low-skilled work. And as you might expect, workers that were low-skilled to begin with have been pushed out of the workforce entirely, which means that getting a college degree is now less about gaining access to better opportunities than it is being more competitive with uneducated workers for low-skilled work. And we'll discuss education more soon, but the authors of this paper suggest that the predictive future of low employment as a result of technology that replaces labor, well, it's not the future, it's already been occurring, at least since 2000, but was masked in economic data by the housing market bubble. But maybe it's time for another example, Daniel, and what better example than Twinkies? As many of you may have heard, Hostess, the maker of the famous Twinkie, went bankrupt a few years ago. A tragedy for all of us that love highly preserved, mostly plastic treats, desserts, and snacks. That's right, David. But the company was saved. Some investors came in and they, in the words of economists and other financial people, they rationalized the production system. They made it work. They streamlined it and they brought some sense back into the process of making Twinkies. And what that basically comes down to is they purchased all the assets of Hostess and fired all the workers, introducing some automation into the process so that they could spend less on labor. And I'm sure in the process also gutted whatever pension or other entitlements I'm sure existed for those laborers that they fired. And this reorganization of Hostess is used as an example by opponents of the minimum wage as a reason to prevent the rise of a minimum wage. because. As they point out, jobs are a cost. They're not a benefit to society. 
jobs are a cost of producing some benefit. And if we want to enjoy that benefit, we have to find a way to remove the cost. And I think we should question the sanity of this perspective because we're being told by those who own the factories that jobs are not a benefit, but that sugar filled junk food is a benefit. And putting people out of work is a worthy sacrifice for that benefit. Now, I don't want to suggest that having tasty food is not a benefit, but who are the people now making the decisions about what benefits society? How is it that workers themselves are not members of society anymore? We have economized everything to the point that impacts on humans themselves are divorced from consideration when it comes to what society needs. And isn't the human consideration the point of doing anything in society to benefit humans? But I guess in the end, when we reduce everything to the dollar figure, we can now say that economic growth is a benefit and jobs are just a cost. Well, Daniel, if the topic is jobs, if they're the cost of growing an economy in some people's perspective, maybe we should look at jobs. What exactly is threatened by automation? Because so far, what we've talked about are these low skill, bottom of the totem pole of the hierarchy of jobs, if you will, fast food workers, agricultural labor. But what really is at risk? Because yes, factories will deploy more automation and that'll have something. But we've mentioned a little bit so far, white collar jobs. So maybe we should look at that and and see exactly what is at threat Yeah, that's right, David. A lot of this automation talk is focused on machines, focused on robots. It's focused on manual labor jobs, low-skill jobs, fast food, factory work, even agriculture. I mean, there's a lot of machines now that are a part of industrial agriculture, which in a way is the root of all this automation in the first place. But where the automation story really gets interesting, it's not robots It's not machines that do all these things for you, but it's software that replaces the work of those of us that sit in offices all day. And perhaps one of the biggest signs of things to come was when in 2011, a computer won Jeopardy. IBM's Watson beat out Ken Jennings in an epic Jeopardy match that the whole world watched. And it was software, David, that enabled this robot, this computer, to win a game that many thought would be impossible for anyone but a human. Because of how complex the language is involved with Jeopardy, how much information there is to... Yeah, I mean, it's not just looking up facts like Wikipedia, right? A piece of software has to understand the hint, the clue that you give in Jeopardy, because everything is a play on words, it's a hint, um, and it's much more complicated than just being like, oh, what's the capital of Sweden? Uh, That's easy for machines to do, but understanding the nuance of language, well, that's where a lot of this advancement in automation is taking place. And that's what enabled Watson to so handily take our jobs in winning game shows. And it's really the integration of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and cloud computing. Okay, there's a lot of buzzwords, but what are these? I mean, so cloud computing, when you look at the marketing copy, it's going to be something like, we use state-of-the-art servers to parallel process all this stuff. But I mean, the, the real simple way for you to understand it is computer is running computations, calculations, software, except it's not your computer. It's somebody else's computer in some warehouse somewhere that you connect to over the internet. That's cloud computing. That's all it is. Somebody else's computer somewhere online. And it allows for extraordinary processing power to be carried out cheaply anywhere in the world by renting these servers. One problem that would take a single computer 260 years to solve was solved in 18 hours by renting a few computers on Amazon's cloud service. 
And building one computer to do that problem would have cost $70 million. But 10,000 servers can be rented from Amazon's cloud service for $90 an hour. We started talking about jobs, but then we got distracted. I mean, look, if you're talking about white collar jobs, the whole reason why white collar jobs are at risk is because of machine learning. That's right. And maybe we best understand it, Daniel, in little things that we find around us all the time. The Alexas, the Google Homes, things where you say into something, ask some sort of command in response to an intelligent or semi-intelligent example of Siri manner. What makes machine learning so powerful, David, is that we're no longer programming complex software to carry out a task on a single computer. At least the way we've understood it. We're no longer having to write complicated code. What we have now is training data that computers can examine, can play around with, and can learn objectives that we're trying to achieve. And this training data can come from anywhere. We talked a lot about surveillance and how facial recognition comes from providing a whole bunch of faces as training data for computers to learn to recognize faces. Well, information technology, as we've talked about, has been integrated in so much business that every single thing is tracked. Some companies even track employee keystrokes so that we know how fast someone types, but also how they type and and what tasks they're doing on their computer. And all of this is being tracked and it can provide a foundation of training data, which computers can then analyze and figure out how to do what we're doing and do it better. And so the end game of this process is that the very work that we do is training computers on how to do that work better than us. And there are entire businesses built on this idea. There's a company that provides a service for managing projects. And what they do is they provide an artificial intelligence that can assign tasks to different employees. But it goes way beyond that. It can also hire freelance workers from anywhere in the world. And as it hires people, it monitors how well they are doing at completing certain tasks. If someone's not completing it fast enough or they don't have the requisite skill, the artificial intelligence will transfer their work to someone else. It might fire them. And all the while that it's doing this, it's also figuring out how to do the work itself so that as time goes on, the software that this company has purchased is figuring out how to require less people to do the tasks that are needed to achieve the objectives. So that means this software is quite literally learning how to do these tasks that it was hiring out, and then only hiring freelancers to do the bits that it hasn't learned how to complete yet. And then in that process is learning how to complete those bits from those freelancers doing that work. That's right. And so this is where we have this influx of a number of factors that are creating the perfect storm for automating away so many of the jobs that we consider high-skilled work, like data analysis or like consulting. Any job that does not require some kind of face-to-face interaction is at risk for being automated away. So data analysis is an example of accelerated consolidation that's occurring right now as a result of this artificial intelligence combined with machine learning and, and all these factors. There's a company, Good Data, It's a Silicon Valley company that offers businesses data analytics to monitor their business. And before cloud computing, the CEO of this company noted that they would have had to employ at least six people for each business that they consulted. And in 2012, with the integration of this artificial intelligence into their business, they could take on 6,000 clients with only 180 employees. And today, they consult over 70,000 businesses. So how do we identify businesses, industries that are ripe for this easy automation replacement. 
And one of the ways that economists, that business strategists have figured out is looking at offshoring. Now, this is the process where jobs are done digitally and remotely in other countries, and it has become a really good indicator of what will be fully automated next. So any job that deals with information and doesn't require this face-to-face interaction that Daniel mentioned is very easy to fully automate. And those jobs, which we think require face-to-face interactions, well, you know what? We should actually start thinking hard about that. Just like Google has done with these call center jobs where we assumed that a human had to be part of this equation, that you needed a human voice that could understand the complexities of human speech. Well, in the same way, virtual reality, video bots, and generated faces might be soon replacing what we thought had to be a face-to-face position. And we find as we go forward that more and more jobs that we thought were good jobs, safe jobs, well, these are vulnerable to automation just as much, if not more so, than the traditional low-skilled, low-paid jobs that you normally get the brunt of automation critiques. Like journalism. There's a company now that's combining data analysis with creative writing. And a lot of sports journalism is being replaced by algorithms that can churn through enormous volumes of sports-related statistics and events every week and create narratives around it that sound as if they're written by humans but can be used in newspapers and online media to report what's happening in sports. And this is also being used for consulting companies now that have huge volumes of data and figure out connections between the data and then create narratives around them. This is one of those jobs that would traditionally be seen as very high skilled, requiring at least a bachelor's degree and maybe something like data analysis, statistics or finance that can now be replaced by algorithms that have learned how to write the way we want them to. And I suppose the pressure of the modern media of focus on more articles faster of places like Twitter have contributed to influence this transition to automated news and journalism even faster. And uh, maybe to have a lighthearted example of automation replacing jobs, uh, we remember, of course, how can we forget it's currently still in the news, all the, the questions about Twitter bots, Russian bots, uh, shill bots of all makes, models, and types that pollute the internet, uh, social media, Reddit, Twitter. All this, in a way, is a form of automation, where automation has replaced the jobs of propagandists, of PR companies, of advertising, and multiply the effects of these techniques, these tools, uh, making it so one person or a small group of people have enough sway online using these techniques of automation to change the narrative, to control the media, and to, as some people might try and argue, even sway elections. And another job you might not think of as being at risk for automation is attorneys. During litigation that occurs between companies, all these internal documents need to be examined to find anything that may be relevant to the case. And this has always been done by armies of attorneys and paralegals that sift through paper documents and try to find connections. Well, now because all communication is being done digitally, algorithms are being used to search millions of records for relevant documents during litigations, and humans have been taken out of the process or simply de-skilled, like we talked about. So there's actually a lot of attorneys now, paralegals, who have jobs sitting at a computer all day, and all they do is they look at images of documents and they click one of two buttons, relevant or not relevant, in a case. And it's about the most boring thing you could imagine doing, especially with a law degree. And so now what might have been a firm once of many lawyers is reduced to a firm of just a few lawyers. And as we de-skill this workforce, as we reduce the number of lawyers required to complete a job, well, that has downward pressures on the wages of the law industry as a whole. And that might be why we have seen 
the average salary of lawyers decline over the past decade, increasingly speeding up as time goes on. Because as it turns out, law is one of the most vulnerable industries for automation. And this bastion of what we used to consider one of the safest and highest paying jobs available to us turned into eventually nothing more than somebody like Daniel mentioned who sits in front of a computer clicking yes or no all day long. And that's no way to spend your time after spending, you know, how many years in law school. And that traditionally has been the answer to uh, automation and to replacement of jobs. It says, well, go back to school. But is that going to be an answer for much longer? Well, that's right, David. I mean, this is one of the arguments that is made when we start criticizing this automation that's taking over the labor force is, hey, automation frees people up to pursue higher skills. It allows you to get a better education. And so we have to question this aspect of this argument and say, is education going to get us out of this problem? Because this is one of the main recommendations made by institutions around the world. I mean, the IMF is one of these institutions that says in order to combat the unemployment that occurs through automation is by increasing investment in education. So what do you think, David? Can we improve education and prevent people from losing their jobs? Education is a scam. They're grifting us. This student loan that will never escape will be employed forever and have no jobs anyway because the robots all took them and they'll beat us in the acid mines with whips to mine acid for the robot batteries. Maybe, David. Maybe. You know, listeners, one of us is automated. I'll leave it as an exercise to the audience to figure out if it's either Daniel or me. Whoever seems less human is probably the one that is most human. Yeah, that's what a robot would say. Look, David, I think when you look at education, there's no doubt that it's had huge impacts on worker productivity and worker competitiveness following the Industrial Revolution. But as we've discussed, this time is different. One of the biggest things that makes this time different is the margin of change that's possible from education. So the Industrial Revolution brought machines and some forms of automation to factories. But those machines were not possible without massive amounts of labor that had basic education and could conform to industrial work. And there was a huge gap between non-educated people and those who were suited for this industrial work. And so the effect that the emergent public education had on the productivity of the economy was enormous. I mean, at this time, many people lacked basic literacy and were coming from agricultural backgrounds. So the amount of change that took place to conform labor to industry was massive. But today, nine out of 10 people within the developed world have a basic high school education, and maybe half of those have some kind of degree after high school. So the potential to educate workers more, well, that potential is just much, much smaller. And you might interrupt to say, well, David, Daniel, once again, you've missed the crux of the argument and those economists and their fallacy of the Luddites. Well, they're still right. Why are they right, David? What have I missed? Well, you imbecile, you, Daniel. You see, you have not considered the fact that, ha someone needs to program these robots in the first place. So the future is all of us sitting inside uh, programming away at these AI all day long, of course. Well, I don't want to do that. Well, listener, you would be wrong because those that create the automation themselves, these software engineers, are in fact being replaced by their very own creations. Just a couple of years ago, the first automated software was writing its own automated software. That's right. This AI is giving birth to other AI and have continued to refine this process. And while right now they aren't at the scale of a good programmer or even honestly a, a decent or mediocre one, the process and the growth in this field has been phenomenal. 
And most experts consider that the vast majority of programming work will in fact be fully automated in the coming decades. And so only those of the most talented expert senior level programmers will be able to compete in this field because the vast majority of work and the vast majority of programming, once again, one of these other, quote, good jobs, is going to be automated by the very software that they write right now. Sowing the own seeds of their destruction, as well as the uh, collapse of our economy as a whole, unfortunately. And David, this is going to affect everything. And I don't think we should go much more in depth about all the types of jobs that could be automated away. I mean, a big one is healthcare. Right? There's now software that can read medical images 10,000 times faster than a human radiologist. In fact, in one case, two days worth of work for one radiologist was taken care of in just 46 seconds by an algorithm. In often cases, even more accurate than a human radiologist can be. That's right. And the University College London Hospitals just announced a three-year contract to employ artificial intelligence algorithms within its system. And these machine learning algorithms will be used to diagnose diseases like cancer, identify individuals that may be at risk for illness, even identify patients that are at risk for missing appointments because of weather and past behavior, and then send them friendly reminders. And these algorithms will try to improve patient wait times in emergency clinics by prioritizing those with the highest risks. Of course, there are concerns about patient privacy and cybersecurity. But you know what, David? I think this kind of raises an important question in my mind, which is, isn't a lot of this automation good? I mean, if there's a computer out there that can read images better than a doctor and tell us faster what someone might have in terms of an illness, isn't that a good thing? I mean, take the Watson example, that IBM robot that won Jeopardy. It relied on 230 million pages of information that programmers fed into it from just about anywhere they could find. Encyclopedias, the internet, of course, all of Wikipedia you know, was being used by Watson. And in the medical field, we still have a system where doctors are diagnosing illness largely on subjective experience. Of course, they're highly educated, but a lot of them have to rely on the previous cases they've seen and whatever literature they're up to date on. And the amount of literature that is out there is massive. Massive and always being updated and growing. And while you might graduate from medical school with a deep knowledge of what's current and what's known, 20, 30 years go by, and if you're not constantly reading medical journals, something an overworked doctor has no time to do, well, the medicine of 30, 40 years ago is very different than the medicine of today. And you might at this point be peddling not current information, technology, or even ideas of pathology as a whole. Something that an AI that's centrally updated and constantly loaded with the most up-to-date information, well, it wouldn't have that problem. In the United States alone, there are over 5,600 medical journals, and each of those publish anywhere from a dozen to hundreds of papers every single year. That's a lot. I mean, it's not possible for doctors to keep up with all of this information. And so something like a Watson for the medical field that can use machine learning to identify a patient's symptoms, correlate it with all the medical research, and come up with probabilities for illnesses that can streamline the process of an educated and skilled doctor making a decision, well, that has enormous potential to improve what is becoming an unmanageable health care crisis globally. That's right. Maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves, and we alluded to this at the beginning of the episode. But in fact, 
Uh, as dire as these unemployment figures might be of a world where we're de-skilling our workforce, where future wages are uncertain and at risk, automation should be a good thing. It's taking away the shitty parts of modern life, of doing these boring, repetitive tasks, of enabling us to have better health care, of, of freeing up our time to do the things that we actually want to do. But it's only because our world is dependent on work, on us individually working to survive, that this is going to be a problem. How do we get ourselves into this position, Daniel? Well, David, I think it goes back to what we said at the beginning. We took away all the land and we charge people just to live and then we automate their jobs away. The system is fundamentally set up to fail if your goal is to provide security and comfort for people of this earth. The system is set up to create dependence among us so that it is easier to exploit our labor at the cheapest price. And we don't really have a plan of transitioning those people who are going to lose their jobs as a result of automation. Well, there are some plans for things we can do, which, which we'll address in a little while. But I want to hit on some of those points. Yes, the land is ultimately the absolute end crux of this, where we're forced to work to survive in this land. But why are we forced to work so much? You go back to the early 20th century, even the mid 20th century, and they were promising us that with the developments of technology, with the things like automation being developed at that time, that in the future, we would only be working 15 or 20 hours a week, much like our early hunter and gatherer ancestors. But what happened? We became more productive. We make more money for those employing us than ever before. But did our wages increase? That's normally the answer. They say, well, we didn't realize that people would be so consumed with consumerism. And they decided they needed to work more in order to be able to buy all the things they wanted. And it was a trade-off. And that was what those early economists got wrong. But is that really true? Almost half this country can't even afford the basic necessities of life. That is to say their rent, their food, and their health care. Over 40%. 43% can't even afford a $400 emergency. That doesn't sound like a country driven to work in order to consume more. That sounds like people who are working just to survive. But at the same time, as you've mentioned, our productivity has just been increasing. What gives? How much of our workforce is just employed in dead-end bullshit jobs? Probably uh, a big portion of it. Well, this is a question that's actually been asked before. And defining a bullshit job is difficult and complicated. There's actually a book that just came out on this called Bullshit Jobs that grapples with this question. And one of the things they mentioned is a couple studies that people did that asked people straight up and said, do you feel like your job is worthwhile? Do you contribute something to society? Is your job useful? Or to simplify, do you have a bullshit job? How many people do you think said, my job is probably bullshit, Daniel? Um, 60%. You've got a pessimistic look at society, I could see. But no, it's close to 40%, depending on the study, of people admitting that all of their job is bullshit. And overwhelmingly, the people who said this weren't manual laborers. They weren't janitors or hairdressers, things that have conventionally been lumped into this bullshit job world, but instead white-collar workers, lawyers, accountants, advertisers. And of those that don't consider their jobs bullshit, when asked about how much of their day-to-day -day work is actually useful, is actual work, less than half of it was anything sort of productive. So what the hell are we doing with our time? We're working more than ever. Our productivity is higher than ever, and we hate every minute of it. Shouldn't we be celebrating this automation that's here to save us from this awful dystopian hellscape that we've created? Well, David, I mean, what are we doing with our time? Why, why do you think so many people feel like the job they're doing doesn't contribute to society in any way? 
That's a really great question, Daniel, and something that, that is quite confusing, uh, especially for people who, who point to the market as this arbiter of what's efficient. Why, in an efficient economy, an efficient capitalistic environment, and maybe it's not pure capitalism or whatever flavor that you want to claim it is, but it's supposed to be essentially efficient. If a job isn't necessary or useful, well, then it shouldn't exist, right? Because who's going to pay somebody to do that? Right. But still, these bullshit jobs persist. We've all had work that we sat around wondering, what the fuck are we doing? I've done nothing today, and they're paying me just to sit here. We've had those moments where we've been working a job and we wonder, what am I doing at this position? I'm contributing nothing. And some people will say, well, you don't realize the greater picture, the top-down view. You are contributing something valuable, but you're just not seeing it because you're just a small piece of the greater machine. Maybe that's true in some scenarios. But when I'm sitting here working, and I truly believe with all my heart that I'm contributing nothing, that's not healthy. It's not a satisfying way to live my life, even if I'm being highly paid. And I've been in rooms sometimes sitting there, being paid $5 a minute to sit there. And I wanted nothing more than to leave and never come back and run out into a field of sun and light and lie there in this nice weather, feeling the sun on my back and being paid nothing. Seems like a much better use of my time. So is this not an assault on all of us? Being forced to work in these horrible conditions, toiling away to create ultimately nothing, The vast majority of people, if not your entire job, but at least large portions of it day to day, in the illusion of trying to look like you're busy, of working, shouldn't we be looking forward to automation, excited that eventually our job will be done by some robot, or that we can come in, do a couple hours of work for the part that the AI, the robot, couldn't do, and then go home and do something better with our time, make a terrible podcast, create some art, or go be social, physical, whatever it is that makes us happy? I think it's clear that the economy that now fuels the world has become totally indifferent to the humans that it's supposed to serve. I think it's a consequence of reducing everything to economic models and rational considerations. We as a society have become indifferent to the role that humans play. We say, oh, well, if we create 10 jobs here, but destroy nine jobs there, well, we come out ahead because we have a net one. So everybody's happy. But like you're saying, David, is everyone truly happy? Are there potentially nine people out there who have nothing now and no way to recover and live except maybe by accepting some menial task that doesn't mean anything to them? When we turn all societal considerations into equations, we sacrifice the part that is human, which in a way is appropriate for a world in which machines replace us. And, you know, one of the rebuttals to many of these concerns that we've raised in this episode about automation include the argument that says, hey, we're lifting people out of terrible and slave-like working conditions. The company Foxconn gets a mention here, the company that manufactures a lot of the iPhones that we use that's in China and is famous for those suicide nets that prevent people that jump out the windows from fulfilling their goal of escaping the terrible working conditions. Well, because of the need to mass produce iPhones and because production needs change according to surges in demand, well, the optimal setup that this company has decided for these workers is to live on site so that when they need to increase production, everyone can be woken up in the middle of the night and they can be forced to work overtime. And the argument goes, hey, those are terrible conditions, but if we automate those jobs, And then we don't have to wake people up in the middle of the night. We don't have to subject people to these terrible conditions where they want to commit suicide. We can just make the robots do it. And this angle totally ignores the systemic insanity of this system that allows slaves in the first place. 
And the fact that we're trying to find a solution to terrible working conditions by increasing the productivity of this work seems to ignore the underlying question of why is this work being carried out in the first place? Well, let's see how this plays out, Daniel. If we don't fix this economic system that incentivizes these bullshit jobs, all this work to survive, what happens in 2030 when 70 million jobs have been eliminated? The places that will be most heavily impacted, David, will be smaller cities, towns that are less than 100,000 people. These are the places that could be at the highest risk because a lot of the jobs in rural areas are automatable. Whereas cities attract a lot of high-skilled labor, a lot of education, creativity, and diversity of work. Well, a lot of towns and cities that are smaller in population can't support this educated workforce. And so a lot of these jobs are at risk for automation. Of course, this is the first line to be hit. As these automation tools get better and more advanced, well, this will follow up and hit these big cities just as much as the small towns. But rural America, small towns, smaller cities, less than 100,000 people are already struggling. We've talked about this in the infrastructure episode. We've talked about this in the pension episode. Both of these things will be exacerbated by loss of jobs. As the income of towns, municipalities, and cities are cut off by a workforce that's increasingly out of work, There goes with it the income that supports these towns, the taxes, the money that goes to pay for all these infrastructures and essential services that enable people to live in these places in the first place. Much more, the pensions of companies, of governments that are already failing are going to be increasingly stressed as the workers that are paying into these pensions to support them are cut more and more and replaced by automation tools. So where one worker is now doing the work of 10 workers before, well, that's still just one worker paying into this pension system. And these systems, which are already stressed at the breaking point, are that much more vulnerable to collapsing. We see collapse at this point coming from all across the board, because as more people are out of work, less money is flowing through the system. The collapse comes from all ends. And we're going to see increasing economic inequality and disparity occurring because of this increasing automation, at least if things continue as business as usual. The city death spiral, David, that we talked about in our infrastructure episode, I guess there are many ways that this can come about. Some political leaders are already becoming aware of this coming problem, but the solutions for this are complicated. One of the areas that we're trying to see right now is people bashing up the tide of low-income workers by increasing minimum wage, something that really should be happening anyway, as living costs have increased dramatically and minimum wage has not. You know, David, I want to come back to this minimum wage, because when you talk about minimum wage, David, cases like that hostess example that we talked about earlier play into the hands of people who argue against raising the minimum wage. They say that if you raise the minimum wage, companies start shedding labor that can be automated. And the implication is, hey, we're at least employing you. If you want us to pay you more, we're just going to replace you. And this raises a question in my mind of who actually bears the cost of much of this technology and who should benefit? Because a lot of the technology that enables companies to replace workers has been paid for by workers themselves in the form of direct taxes and other subsidies, not to mention the innovations that workers implement on the job themselves. The Labor Center at UC Berkeley found in 2013 that half of all fast food workers in the U.S. have families that rely on public assistance to survive, costing the U.S. taxpayer $7 billion every year, which means the money which some of these companies have to pay for things like research and development and the purchase of automation technology comes from labor cost savings made possible through subsidies. 
But we pay for this technology much more directly because much of the research itself is funded by taxpayer money. DARPA, a taxpayer-funded U.S. department, gave a lot of the early seed money for that computer network that became the internet. And DARPA provided money to Apple to develop Siri and has helped pay for computer chips at IBM. In addition, the National Science Foundation gives grants to universities for research that is used to improve the manufacture of computer hardware that powers the machine learning algorithms replacing service sector jobs. And the Semiconductor Industry Association has a powerful presence in D.C. lobbying for federal research money. So workers are literally paying for the technology that companies use to replace them. And then these companies capture all the profits resulting from higher productivity and lower labor costs for themselves. And so the solution to a lot of this is, once again, all of us paying to fix these problems. And that's most notably found in Universal Basic Income, or UBI. And if you haven't already heard about this, you're going to be hearing about it a lot over the coming years and decades, if it's not already too late at that point. And honestly, a UBI could be its own episode, but the crux of it is this. The government pays all of us a set amount of money, no matter what, no matter what you do. So say it's $10,000 a year, $20,000 a year. And this money is supposed to be enough to enable you to survive somewhere, maybe not well, but at least be able to feed yourself and house yourself so you can live without having to work. Which sounds like a great concept, David. Yeah, honestly, you know, like this is a great way to, maybe we should have been talking about this a long time ago, but the problems run into this when we start talking about how do we fund this um, immediately, the, the only way to do it is to eliminate all welfare. All that is gone, and this replaces all of that. And then uh, at the same time, this is going to be, even with, with that, the reduced income that would come from a country that's half out of work um, is going to mean that much less income tax uh, set aside to enable to pay for something like this. Couple it in, by 2030, we'll be over $30 trillion in debt at the national level for the U.S., which means almost a quarter of our budget will be going to servicing this debt. And finding money to pay for UBI is going to become increasingly difficult as the economy gets tighter and when we need it more than ever. I mean, isn't the idea that if you can replace labor at a lower cost than a human, then that itself is freeing up money that can be used to then support that worker? I mean, it seems like the math would work out as long as companies are not hoarding all the benefit of this automation for themselves. Yes, the magnanimous companies that have happily redistributed all the tax credits they just received from the Trump administration uh, to their workers uh, have demonstrated in the past that we can trust them 100% with incentives like automation. Um, in order to pay for UBI. What, wait, wait a second. I just, sorry, that was that just took over my head. That was all wrong and made up. That, none of those things actually happened. They actually hoarded all the money and will continue to do so into the future, I'm sure. And uh, demonstrates why UBI is never going to fundamentally, I think, be deployed in any sort of scale that actually supports people's ability to live without work. It becomes a crutch to replace welfare, but at the same time still demand people work to survive. I think you're right, David, that that could and probably should be its own episode. Yeah, I, I mean, I could literally sit here and talk for another hour on this UBI. But the one concept I want to take from it is that it's an admission of two things. One, that if we don't do something, society, the state, civilization, as we know it, is going to collapse. Either by people just straight up starving to death, unable to house themselves, or by general discontent, by revolt of people who, when they can't feed themselves, when they have no place to live, what the hell else are they going to do except reach out, grab something violent, and, and say, this is not right. I shouldn't be subjected to this. This is not what humans should do to each other. 
And it's admission, UBI is supported by people largely in, in high political positions and in, in economic positions, CEOs, Elon Musk is one of these, that says, if we don't do this, then everything collapses. All this money and wealth that we built will be for nothing because society, civilization is gone. And at the same time it says that, it also admits, and this is the thing I think they get right, really more than anything, that we shouldn't have to work to survive. This is how we open this episode, and I think the real concept that we need to take away from this is that automation enables us to have all the comforts of our civilization without the work that we put into it, the busy hours every day that we waste on creating nothing, on getting our productivity up there and not actually enjoying the fruits of our labor, of working just because we're supposed to work, or at least look like we're working. And UBI says, you know what? We should be able to just survive. The land is no longer available to us to live off of. We have to have some sort of money to have a place to live, to have food to eat. But we should pay people to allow them to be able to survive like that without work. And I think that's absolutely true. If we want a future where we all survive, where we all live with a possibility of happiness, then a world where we don't have to work, I think, is an essential component of that. And at least where we don't have to work in these bullshit jobs. There's nothing wrong with work itself. In fact, working on something that's hard or, or difficult, but being able to see the fruit of your labors to feel proud at the end of a project and see what you've made is one of the most rewarding things that humans can experience. So it gives us purpose in our lives. But how much of us actually get to enjoy that in the work that we do day to day? In a world where we aren't forced to waste our time on this busy work, on things that don't matter, I think a lot of people, I know I would, will find joy in doing this work that we care about, a work that ultimately makes us all better, that makes civilization better, that makes all of us better. And if it's UBI that we need that in order to get us there, or just an admission that our economy is broken, our style of living is broken, our civilization is broken, and we need to rethink our relationship with work, well, if that's what it takes, then that's what I'm prepared to do. So bring on the automation, bring on the unemployment, I'm ready for change. Bring it on, David. So in the face of this coming technological change that is going to reshape the way we live, what can we do now to prepare? What can we do to help steer this change in the direction towards uh, a world in which we can actually live and do work with purpose that means something to us. Being able to enjoy the fruits of our labor, of workers being a part of the productive process and owning the things that they create is a great step forward to realizing a world where we only work for what we need, only work enough to satisfy the requirements of our modern life. Like we said at the beginning, it all comes down to the land. The fact that the land is closed off from us and that we're forced to work just to survive is what has created this problem in the first place. This, this problem of jobs that don't mean anything to us, jobs that shouldn't exist in the first place, and this disconnect from anything meaningful in our lives in terms of our work. Because we've been integrated into an industrial economy that has reduced humans to interchangeable parts that simply play a small part in a large machine that is distributing goods across the world, we no longer have any connection to the work that we're actually doing if we're not part of something local. And so for me, I think this ultimately comes down to the land. We need communities that are locally adapted, that can sustain themselves, that can support themselves. And that's going to take all of us. And maybe as consumers, we need to think about the human element when we do our shopping, when we go about our lives. Well, in the same way that the economy reduces humans to uh, interchangeable parts, to dollar figures, we as consumers do the same thing when we value something for its convenience or its cost. 
without considering the people behind this product that we're longing for or purchasing and where it might have come from. You know, if we want to be able to order a cheeseburger on a phone app, select a time for pickup, and then drive up to a fast food chain and pick it up from an automated window, if that's what we really want, businesses are more likely to implement it, and with it means the labor goes out the door. And so what can we do? I think as individuals and as communities, we need to support things that are more in line with sustainable communities and at the same time start thinking about the human labor that's behind the products and services that we consume and expand our values beyond just the dollar figures. As always, that's a lot to think about, but we hope you will think about this and consider what your place is in the workplace as we go forward towards this automated world and our definition of work and what it means to work is challenged. If you want to learn more about any of the things we talked about today, read a full transcript of this episode, or much more, you can do all that on our website at ashesashes.org. A lot of time and research goes into making these shows possible. And we will never use ads to support this show. We will never purchase ads, as effective as that might be, to crowd your news feeds. So if you like this show and would like us to keep going, you can support us by sharing us with a friend and giving us a review. Also, we have an email address. It's contact at ashesashes.org. And we encourage you to send us your thoughts, positive or negative. We'll read it and we appreciate it. You can also find us on your favorite social media network at Ashes Ashes Cast or on Reddit at r Ashes Ashes Cast. Next week, we're digging deep into debt. So we hope you'll join us for that. It's going to be an educational and thought-provoking episode as always. But until then, this is Ashes Ashes. Bye. Bye-bye.